everybody. Welcome to Friday Happy Hour. We've got a very special show for you today. Uh, and the reason why it's very special is because host of the Next Gen Waterfronts, Dan Martin, is with us. Dan, welcome to Friday Happy Hour. Thank you very much. Good to be here, Tyler. And I've got a co-host of the American Shoreline podcast and my partner over here at mm-hmm. Coastal News Today and the ASPN, Peter Ravella, joining us for Happy Hour. Perfect thing to do on a good Friday afternoon, you guys. It is hot out. It is a beautiful afternoon for refreshments. Of course, we're all having coffee today. Uh, (laughs) No, it's not always beers uh, at Friday happy hour. But with Dan passing through town, we just had to get together and talk about the coastal topics du jour. And Dan came loaded to bear. Dan, what is it that you want to talk about today? Well, I'm, I'm curious with extreme weather being such a real part of our lives now. Um, my family back in Chicago was going through, I think, 95, 96 degree weather, possibly hitting 100 today. And uh, in most of the uh, central part of the country and the east part of the country, eastern uh, seaboard, being very hot today. And, and I think you pointed out to me, Tyler, that they're getting this over in Europe as well right now. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, we've had uh, our first hurricane uh, of the season, uh, a season now that has special uh, extra attractions on the front end now. It used to start, I think, about three months from now. Now hurricane season starts early. Um, that well, I guess I guess extreme weather has become a real part of our lives, and the question is is what has that done to our national conversation and I guess perception of climate change? Are a lot of climate change deniers now thinking about, hmm, this might be right. I'm still not sure the humans have anything to do with it, but it might be right. Maybe there is climate change because just the preponderance of their evidence, of the evidence. And, you know, I don't know what the ratings are for the Weather Channel. I think we looked at that. We tried to look at it. I couldn't find it. Yeah, yeah, but but it's got to be higher than it used to be simply because uh, everyone's curious now. What's hitting uh, my relatives and friends? And, you know, with America having so many dispersed families, uh, you know, where kids are all over the country, um, you know, we're all sort of bought into the whole nation as what's going on here might affect what's going on over there. Um, so I guess my question, and it's for you guys uh, at first, and, you know, let's go back and forth on this. Absolutely. Is what is the story with people's expectations and understanding of climate change? Has extreme weather changed it? Peter, do you want to lead off? Well, I, it, we don't have I don't have a, a, a public poll or polling data to refer to to really answer the question. I, I I have a couple of thoughts on it from what I've read and posted, you know, on Coastal News today over the past two or three months. The best uh, coastal news website in the world. That's right, the best aggregation to coastal news. But how has it changed people's perception? Um, you know, I like to say reality is a persistent teacher. And uh, we can there. This is what I think is interesting about climate change as a as a subject matter and as a public policy discussion matter. Right. Is that we're talking here about the physical world, truly an inert process that is occurring in the atmosphere. Supposedly what we're told, carbon dioxide gets into the atmosphere carbon monoxide, other greenhouse gases, it reacts a certain way in the third thermodynamics of the atmosphere. And what I like to say is it, the, the molecules in the atmosphere don't care if you believe what they're doing or not. There is no discussion. It's sort of like debating whether or not gravity exists. These are physical things in the world. 
The only question is, are we describing them accurately, this phenomenon? So what I think out there is, the, I think the physics of the, the, the look, June, right? The, the month we just passed was That's the right. hottest June on record in the world. This is worldwide temperature averages that were just released by NOAA. Yeah. And we had 90 degrees in Anchorage, Alaska, the first time ever in early July earlier this month. Uh, we have record temperatures around the planet. Now, it's not climate, right? That's weather. Uh, yeah. But I think the reality is, uh, I think damn people are coming to terms with the fact that the world is changing. Things are happening in I mean, ways that didn't happen before. It's That's obviously changing. I mean, the, the politics are changing. The perception is changing. I think we can all sense that. What's weird is that because this scientific thing that you're describing, Peter, was so politicized. I mean, that first of all, that's weird. It would yeah. be like believing the earth is flat and having to be convinced by, I don't know, satellite imagery or something, a photograph of earth from space that, oh, yeah, yeah, wow, it's really a, a round spherical planet. Um, it's just a bizarre thing that that has happened. But yeah. looking at it, just this is my own two cents now. I do believe that the perception has changed. And Dan, to get back to your uh, initial kind of thought here that the extreme weather events, or let's just say unusual weather events or weather events that are perceived to be unusual, yeah. is a contributing factor to people beginning to acknowledge uh, climate change and just an understanding that things are changing. I mean, I'll start with my own family. Uh, uh, the town of Ojai, where my parents lived, was engulfed uh, by fire um, after a 30-year drought. Now, the, all of the water scientists would tell you that in the recorded history of the Ojai Valley, um, a 30-year drought is kind of a normal occurrence, and that the, the moisture levels in the 50s and 60s were unusually high. And so there's a lot of like institutional memory of uh, the town being wetter than uh, it had been. And then, of course, the, the mountains got dry, the fire erupted. Uh, it was this incredibly traumatic experience that left everybody, uh, pardon the pun, but, you know, it was burned in their mind. And now uh, there is totally, a, a, water is now regarded differently in the Ojai Valley. Uh, politically, it's a different thing. That fire changed something. That's an extreme event. It's a disaster, but it's an extreme event that um, is, has changed the way people are, are thinking about the water supply and rain, and that's all climate and, stuff. And, and just, to, just to put it geographically, my re recollection having been to Ohio yeah. is that it's north of Ventura uh, on the uh, California coast. Is that right? It, so, it would, so it's yeah. not really in the L.A. base, and it's north of there. It's a little north of there. Yeah. The, the other, the, well, the little bit of a story that I was, I was uh, thinking about earlier today is, is back at the beginning of this uh, political, the current political uh, administration, um, a couple of science colleagues, uh, uh, friends of mine who were former directors of Science Museum and myself, surveyed, I think, about 80 or so uh, directors of science and natural history museums and asked them about what they saw coming. And, um, and like I told you guys earlier, uh, we published it somewhere, uh, but we'd guaranteed anonymity. One of, right. the, one of the things that I thought was really interesting when we were doing this, and it was kind of a, a national group that we went from coast to coast and up and down, 
was was that in a lot of red states, people were reluctant to go on the record um, and actually kind of reluctant to to even talk about it with their boards because a lot in in a lot of cases the benefactors on their boards were people who were um, not believers in climate change, either through their own convenience or or, or whether they seriously did not believe it. Uh, and others, I think, just didn't care. Uh, so these, so this, so we had an interesting situation where we discovered quite a few people in science who were sort of silenced by economic needs or by economic dependence in some cases. And just recently, um, I had uh, had occasion to revisit with one of these folks, and in a very public forum, that individual uh, spoke very openly about climate change. And uh, and actually uh, talked about the consequences uh, on their part of the he he is on a coastal area, on his coastal area, and he talked about how he saw the future changing, but mainly for other coastal areas, not for his own. So there's kind of a there's kind of a people are coming to having having a coming to reality moment here uh, nationally, and and I, I wonder how how. How widespread it is, and, and again, I think it's in part because they're using the cover of extreme weather, and how widespread it is, and what the next consequences of it will be. You know, it's a, the topic of people's reluctance to uh, acknowledge or to just address this topic straight up, straightforward, in a straightforward manner. Uh, was was something we spoke to M- Mitchell Hitchcock Hescocks about right at Earth the X. Reverend the Reverend Mitchell Hescox I think is how you pronounce his name and uh, he is the president and CEO of the Evangelical Environmental Network and he said I go around the country and speak to evangelicals and in churches where bringing up climate changes is is not a popular idea. And he said, look, I think one of the things that happened in American politics is this issue became associated very quickly with Al Gore. There was an effort to take climate change uh, and global warming, as it was called back then, and to make it a hyper-political argument. and and, And once that happened, people of a certain political viewpoint were no longer able to sort of consider prospect that this could be happening. It was, must have been a political agenda. Now, this continues to be a thread in the political dialogue now, that there's a hindrance. Well, it's a pattern in political dialogue now as well, because some things that are were widely accepted by uh, by our population as, you know, part of our core value, if you will. Um, you know, uh, how does it go? E plubrius uh, unum uh, out, of, out of many one yeah. um, are not necessarily being embraced anymore. And, and so the political notion of, of suddenly something takes a sharp turn after it's politicized has really, um, I guess, put a bunch of good and fairly fundamental concepts and ideas in the wilderness. Right, and, and are being called into question. But here's, here's, here's my thought. Uh, when we were at EarthX, we interviewed several people uh, in industry, science, in the military, uh, who are all concerned about climate change and investing millions of dollars. Uh, the Carbon X Prize, we interviewed the executive director of the Carbon X Prize, a $20 million prize on carbon sequestration. We interviewed companies that are investing millions in the technology. We've interviewed the folks who are putting, uh, expected to see billions in, in tax credits through the IRS 45Q tax credit for carbon sequestration in the oil and gas industry. 
Uh, these are all things we've talked about. Here's my question. Does it matter that the public is the last to the rodeo? I think serious leaders, economic, political, in the United States and around the world, uh, including Senator Whitehouse, who uh, we interviewed uh, from Delaware, right, or was it Rhode Island? Rhode Island. Fantastic. Talk, talking about how this is working in Congress. But I think the serious people are open to this, are seeing the information, are reacting to the truth. The American public, I don't think, has moved particularly far and is, and is behind. I think they're behind. I, you know what? I'm just going to disagree a little bit on this. I think okay. that I think what they might be, on, be behind is using rhetoric that you would affiliate with an environmentalist vis-a-vis uh, -vis climate change, even the term climate change. And I think, I think that if you care about um, climate change and adapting our, our footprint, we got to get over that term because it's just totally tainted. Okay. I mean, it's become like a religious term or something like Unfortunately, that. Unfortunately, I think you're right. Remember, wait, we interviewed uh, Colonel Zetterstrom from the Galveston District, the commander of the Galveston District, about the planning that they're doing on the $32 billion right. coastal. Former, barrier. former commander. Former commander as of this month. Yeah. And we asked him about climate change. I said, do you, do, does the report account for climate change? And he said, we don't use the term climate change. No, we don't account for climate change. But what we do account for is sea level rise, and here's how we do it. But we do not use that term. So you're right. It, it has become a term that is, that is inaccessible across the full political spectrum. At least with the public. Like, that's going to be... Because at, at the high levels, uh, I'm reminded of uh, the piece and the... Uh, Texas Chronicle about it was Texas Chronicle the uh, Houston Chronicle the, no 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 the, I'm, the I'm, Tribune the Texas Tribune yeah I'm reminded the of the Tribune. piece about uh, in the Netherlands you know they they would observe American decision makers on flood control and they said well when it needs to happen it happens you know ultimately there might be much discussion about sea level rise and climate change in on MSNBC or you know as entertainment as political fodder. But when you're actually, when you're the U.S. Navy and you're actually making decisions, you bet your boots they're looking at the data and they're making the decision the right way. Or if you're a major oil company or any company and this is going to impact your bottom line, you're looking at it. Well, right. this, this, is, this is coming to the fore in coastal development. And in, um, in the Next Gen podcast, we're going to be talking to people uh, over, I'm going to say, the next few months about this notion of, of value. And, and how property loses value uh, if it's on coastal, if it's in coastal situations where it may be compromised by flooding in the future. And, and there was a great piece in Urban Land Magazine last fall, uh, which is a magazine produced by the Urban Land Institute, uh, and it talked about that whole idea of, 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 of what's, what's, what do we have here at stake? What are, what are all of our investors? Uh, what have we sold them investments in? And, uh, and what, is the, uh, what is the exposure that we have? And, and I think we're actually talking about a couple of things. One is the extreme weather, but also the extreme flooding. Right. Uh, and, and the whole notion of flooding as, as completely changing lifestyles in a lot of coastal communities. Uh, and some communities that actually aren't on the coast. Um, you know, we all could not have missed uh, the uh, New Orleans stories of flooding twice over the past month. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, New Orleans is kind of like the canary in the coal mine for the rest of us. It sort of says, hey, wait, this is what life becomes like if you live in a city that floods. 
and numerous studies have indicated that uh, that we're going to have chronic flooding in in well over 100 cities on the east and Gulf Coast uh, in just uh, 20 years or so. But but going back to the whole real estate angle and the value is is shortly after uh, shortly after that article appeared in. Uh, Urban Land Magazine, there was a great study done by, I believe it was Blackstone, and Blackstone's research arm. Yeah, and, and it was. And they addressed a couple of things that were really interesting, because not only did they talk about real estate values under threat, um, because, of course, Blackstone is, is, is a major investor, um, investor group, but they also addressed the idea that our refineries are exposed and that our electrical grids are exposed. Uh, and, of course, we all know that electricity and water really don't get along so well. Not a good mix. So, so much of our power generation and literally our power supply, in the case of refineries, um, are along the Gulf Coast uh, and are exposed to issues. But that's not just the Gulf Coast. That's the East Coast as well, because a lot of power generation facilities are close to the coastline for a number of supply issues that may not be as, as, as real today because a lot of them are coal plants and took, right. received coal that way. So I, I think there's there's all sorts of institutional groups that institution in the case of um, institutional investors and, and other business groups that are beginning to see a new urgency here. In, in, in another podcast uh, with, uh, with Greg Corey, we had talked about how the time frame was, was not working on, on the side of rationality in Florida where people would only have a house for five years, but they, would, but they were getting 30-year mortgages. Well, you know, five years was, was, was nothing. I mean, things aren't going to be that serious, we thought, in five years. So there was no imperative to stop issuing mortgages in, in threatened areas. I don't know. I think I think really kind of across the board, extreme weather and and consistent flooding issues are beginning to have uh, an impact on on America's mental state about the world we live in, and you know whether we're going to be driven into a, in, into places away from where there's threats, um, particularly weather now is evident with uh, extreme heat. Well, I think Dan, up in the Midwest where you're from, Chicago, uh, we all watched. Uh, this flooding in the upper Mississippi River Basin all spring long, really going back to November, historic levels of historic. flooding. The great flood of 2019. In 2019 that uh, in Iowa, for example, the lowest corn planting numbers, percentages of acres planted was this year. Uh, they set record lows in, in, in getting the crops in the ground this year. Uh, the futures market in corn and soybeans and wheat has really been affected by the by the dramatic uh, up flooding all up in the Midwest. And all of that water now, of course, making its way down to New Orleans, where we're going to have the hypoxic zone is predicted to be the second largest ever because of the flow. Right. There's been a significant impact on the fisheries uh, in the Mississippi Delta area. Uh, die-offs of oysters like Pontchartrain because of the disruption of the salinity regime has been so massive in the way the water comes a in. So Actually, Peter, if I, if I, I mean, may, go back and explain what the hypoxic zone is and how that relates to the flooding and farm fields. Well, um, off of the Mississippi Delta, as the water comes into the Gulf of Mexico, laden with a lot of phosphorus and nitri nitrates and other farm nutrients, uh, this water gets into the Gulf of Mexico. It results in a massive algal bloom in in the Gulf of Mexico that 
those those al, al, single cell algaes then die off and sink to the bottom, and the decomposition of all of that material produces an, an, uh, a hypoxic zone, a low oxygen dead zone, and it's mapped every year. This is this is something that's been happening for decades now, but the size of it is a function of the amount of fertilizer that's getting into the water. So that 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 big flood up in the Midwest that washed out all of that farmland and all of that non-point source pollution and all of the nitrates and the phosphorus that make their way down to the hills. And and it's an incredible connection between direct, yeah, direct between between what we put on our fields, our agriculture in the Midwest. And and the dead zone in in the uh, in, I just, in the Gulf. I just want to. Yeah. Peter, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong. But I just want to make a, a quick uh, note on that. I do believe that. Um, I think it would be unfair to say that it's 100 percent uh, farm. You know, it's definitely nutrients. not 100. It's you know, in, in other words, it's organic matter and and stuff that's getting shot out the river you know from from the continent of north yeah the delta there right yeah i mean so so, obviously that and and urban yeah uh, urban runoff and uh it's ever treated effluent is which is also high and uh but this is you know the large, very large dead zone of the Gulf of Mexico this year is what NOAA is predicting about almost eight thousand square what miles. Did, what did they say? It was it was the size of the state of what state? Massachusetts. Massachusetts. All right. About the size of Massachusetts, and well, it really I'm, I'm is from Massachusetts, and it's pretty big. It's pretty big. Yeah. Well, it, all right. We're no South Dakota. But I, I think the the point we're making, uh, I think they're that these extreme weather events. Uh, it, our perception of them and how significant an issue is, and is the world really changing? Are risks different? Uh, I, I think it's fair to say that the world is going to teach us the reality. That's how I say reality is a persistent teacher. If we have another massive hurricane season like we did last year, where a town was completely wiped off the Gulf of Mexico, uh, Mexico Beach, in the Florida Panhandle last year, uh, if we see that persistent uh, Effort. If we see these continued floods, if we see land losses and we see blue sky flooding in coastal communities around the United States, for if it happens enough, I think the, the folks who control lots of money and people who decide where to go and swim and where to vacation, those people, those are going to start to get factored into real world decisions. So, so this so this sort of started with with my question about whether it's changing people's Americans perception. Of, of climate change, uh, that is the reality of the flooding. Um, I'm not sure the dead zone in the in the in the uh, Gulf Coast is really uh, gonna, you know, register as much with uh, everyday Americans well, let as, me, as the cost of food. Let me speak to that. Yeah, mm-hmm. because I, th- I mean, you're right, Dan. Uh, certainly, uh, if the cost of of corn uh, is affected by climate change, that's gonna impact um, people in a different kind of way. But uh, I also, you know, from our social media desk, I I think that the um, what that dead zone has killed a number of dolphins, and that uh, anytime you have, as we have discussed previously on this on uh, the podcast network, uh, anytime you have a whale or a dolphin um, die uh, on an on the American shoreline, it's going to get photographed and it's going to go viral. Yeah, you get that. And um, I'll tell you that the plastic ban the single-use plastic uh, movement, which is expanding uh, week by week across the American shoreline and maybe even beyond, uh, largely a social media-driven event. 
Um, and so I do think that the shareability uh, as as we're able to communicate with people uh, all over the country, all over the shoreline, uh, using social media, showing people it's not just, hey, this is the temperature in Anchorage, Alaska, but here's a picture, a photograph from today of an area that sh- there should be a big glacier there and it's missing or, you know, th- that kind of visual or, or video content that is now everywhere it's extremely effective Mm. at Mm. very quickly conveying oh my god you know boy i'm seeing that it's hot everywhere you know my friend in in washington dc is underwater and flooding and in new york it's way hotter than it should be i mean yeah it's just you're being uh, bombarded with this information on social media well the, the sort of central question is how does acceptable widespread acceptance of of changes in public policy happen because it's public policy and societal policy that will change our behaviors. And, and, and it does seem as if a lot of um, the, I'll say, the management of America is now coming into line with, uh, with uh, climate change, whether it's the investment community uh, who have invested um, in, in, in coastal communities. But I'm not sure that they're necessarily as concerned about their investments elsewhere that may not be, that may be contributing to climate change in other ways. Right. But clear situations where they're going to lose money, it, it, you know, I think we're going to see them start to back off from things. And I also think we're going to have to think twice about the whole idea of our, our electrical grid being under threat from uh, climate change. And our refineries and other things being under threat from uh, from climate change, but that's a different that's a different vector that can change politics or policy than what the public thinks. So, in another sense, we have to think about: can we bring the public along to feel differently too? Or if we don't think of it as bringing the public along, is the public joining in in the parade because they're seeing the extreme weather um, and and the extreme flooding, and we just don't know. Uh, but it does seem as if there has been a shift, and and even to the point where Jay Inslee, the uh, the uh, I guess he's still the current governor of Washington, but yes, he's running for the Demo- that's right. Yeah, he's running for the Democratic nomination. He's a and candidate. He's, he's a candidate. He's he's at one percent or so, uh, so he's not 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 catching on fire. But uh, but he's he's entirely based his campaign on climate change. Mm-hmm. But he's also uh, interestingly based his campaign on climate change as economic development. Right. That that this is an opportunity to have economic arbitrage, to, to make money off of a changing situation at the same time as you do try to do something about it. Right. So I, I think we're in an interesting place in American business now where where people are beginning to see ways to make money off of this. And I listened to an interview earlier today about changes coming in the nuclear industry because they see huh. themselves as being an important part. of. They could be a go to answer. They could be a go to answer. I'm mm-hmm. not I'm not, you know, as somebody who was at Seabrook 40 years ago, 50 years ago in New Hampshire. Um, you know, I may not have been all the, that big of a fan of it back then. But mm-hmm. uh, but in the face of uh, of, of the hydrocarbon and burning the dead dinosaurs I'm not sure that there's mm-hmm. uh, that that's such a bad choice now but it, it is interesting to see how uh, how business is responding and in fact we have to move business it can't just be public opinion because right. it's business that is making the decisions that is 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 uh, uh, is putting the rest of us uh, at risk well I, I, I really agree with your assessment that there is a business opportunity. Uh, this phenomenon, however it is understood, how accurately we can describe it in, in all of its manifestations, uh, 
does create opportunities, and I think we're seeing them around the world. Uh, you see what uh, companies in China that are investing in the development of wind power or in, in photovoltaics. Uh, European countries are the leaders in offshore wind power. Uh, the governor of New York this week uh, just signed the largest wind power purchase contract in American history off uh, for off of New York. Uh, this is in, uh, joining several other northeast states. And the contractors who are winning all of that business are European and Sweden, uh, Swedish companies. They're not American engineering firms or American manufacturers, although General Electric is involved in the production the turbine part. Of, the, of, the, of the generators. Oh, yeah. So, so we're not getting the Norwegians, but we're getting their money yeah. <laughs> and, <we're> <laughs> and their technology. They're getting their – but, you know, that should be – that could and, and should be uh, – could be American manufacturers. Um, so there's – I think there's a, a number of business opportunities that have present, been created. Uh, and, Tyler, I'd go back to that carbon sequestration conversation we had with uh, with uh, Dr. Havorka, uh at UT. And, and look, this – there are there is more than a billion dollars in venture capital in funds that have been set aside to figure out how to decarbonize the atmosphere, and the investors in that are some of the wealthiest Americans out there. Bill Gates, other venture capitalists who are positioning themselves to become even richer as they become part of the solution to climate change. When the public eventually gets there and demands action, there are people positioning themselves and companies positioning themselves to to become, make a lot of money off this problem. And so, so I'm, I'm a, a lot of American uh, companies are missing that, though. And, 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 I, and I, guess, I have to say I'm a little uneasy in a sense uh, from a Democratic point of view that uh, so much can happen and seems to be happening um, uh, in in business, and you're right. It's not necessarily American business. It's a European business in a lot of cases. Businesses, I should say, um, that is that is helping to uh, impact the future of uh, of of our planet. Um, I'm a little uneasy that it's happening without the democracy of people coming along, and and it would it would it would somehow be a lot more. Uh, be a lot more hopeful, I think, if, if, if in fact we had people. And it's amazing in a sort of a way that, that Mother Nature has stepped in to spank us a bit to, uh, to possibly bring about that awareness and bring about that sort of uh, national attitude, that national conversation that, oh boy, maybe we ought to do something about this. Um, now, I don't think Jay Inslee's polls have increased at all in the last two or three months. But I do think the conversation and the way we're looking at all the change that we're seeing um, is is shifting. I wish there was a way to, to, to know for sure. Well, and I would say um, that it is and that I do think that the reason why we are beginning to see uh, – political figures who at one point were silent on uh, climate change come out now uh, and take, I'm going to say, uh, green positions. They might not use the word climate change, mm -hmm. but they are, the record shows that there is movement. And we've been seeing this for a long time. Um, I would look to uh, Florida, uh, the governor there, yeah. campaigned, cornerstone of the campaign was environmental. I would look to, he's a Republican, I would look to California where the state, uh, the people elected for a higher gas tax. They, they voted for it themselves. Um, and that money is going to go toward climate adaptation. So um, 
I do think that there, and these are, that, that is democracy speaking directly. I mean, uh, that that is as as black and white as you get, I guess, when you have a, an actual a, referendum. And that's a those are two really hopeful signs. The uh, the idea that uh, that there are Republicans who are now standing up for uh, environmental policies that will make a difference in climate change, in the populist voting as it did uh, in California. Those are hopeful signs, um, you know, on a Democratic level. And I do wonder if nationally we might see the Republican Party begin to come back to the environmental movement as business sort of permits it to, I suppose, and, and as, as it sees uh, populations that may have woken to the, uh, uh, to the need to address the issue uh, in, in, a, in a more rational way. Well, the old Teddy Roosevelt Republicans might be on their way back. Uh, it's about time to wrap up this happy hour, guys. Let's do uh, final thoughts. Peter. Do you have a final thought? Well, it's hard to uh, talk about uh, climate change or uh, and coastal issues without talking about fisheries. And we didn't really go into the fisheries. But uh, when I'm looking around at what's happening on the coast and compiling news for Coastal News today, uh, the shift in what animals are doing, again, these are these are... These are things that are beyond political persuasion. Nobody's out there telling the birds where to be. Uh, but the animals, especially commercial fishing species, are migrating northward all over the world in ways that are economically significant and noticeable to fishing communities already. That's happening on the eastern seaboard. It's happening on the west coast of the United States. It's happening uh, around the world. So when you see those kinds of physical natural systems adjusting to new to new to new circumstances you have to ask yourself why are these things happening what's changed in the world so when i'm looking at it and one of the things that i compile a lot on coastal news today is i do pay attention to what's happening in american fisheries because the economic and cultural and community aspects of of fishing and on the American shoreline are huge, and these communities are going through transformations right now. Um, you know, and Dan, from your hometown over there in Boston, uh, Boston used to be a major lobster fishing area of south of Cape Cod. It is no longer, and that is partly a function of of climate uh, and certain other factors. But uh, there's a prediction that the that the famed Maine lobster fishery will be moving into Canada and no longer be commercially viable in the in the Gulf of Maine before too long. That's kind of a startling. I, I, that's, I, I'm throwing that out. I'm throwing I, that. I, out. I think I think I think that image of uh, of of lobsters are crawling along the bottom of the ocean, migrating north to Canada is 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 kind of an interesting image. I'm not sure I I can entirely you know. Uh, that's not how it happens. Oh, that's though. not how it happens. No, because oh, they so, don't so, actually so, walk. What happens is because they don't like they don't have they don't have suitcases or no. bags. I don't know how they, how they take their belongings. What happens is is the reproductive health of the population, the center of the reproductive success moves northward. So as the as the area is no longer reproductively active, 
the the reproduction is moving northward. So they the because these things only live uh, well, they can live for a very long very time. Very long time. Yeah, I was going to say we I, catch I them for forty five year old lobsters. Sure, and, yeah. but the commercially ones that we catch are two to three years old. We're catching the babies; uh, they're just a pound or oh, two. That's, oh, that's such an image reading baby lobsters. <laughs> they are, they're sexually mature by that <laughs> yeah, point. Yeah, they yeah, are, yeah. Uh, but it's the it's the center of the uh, reproductive population that is shifting, uh, and they're no longer reproductively successful. Say in Long Island Sound in New York, where there used to be a major lobster fishery, or in Massachusetts or South Cape Cod, those those fisheries no longer are reproductively successful for a variety of reasons. So that 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 I think you're right. It, it has been happening, or so I hear from my relatives back on the East Coast for for a number of years. And the notion of a Maine lobster will have to be return, I guess, in a number of years as a Nova Scotia or New Brunswick lobster. That might the, be the case. Yeah, that we've you know that, I'll tell you we've already lost. This is important kind of <laughs> I think we've already lost the export market of lobsters to China. That is now a Canadian market. Yeah, I have lobster then I flounder. Yeah, they uh, yeah they because of the tariffs, but but direct flights from Nova. Nova Scotia to Beijing, China now are all Canadian lobsters. The uh, United States is not selling lobsters into China right now uh, because of the tariff situation. Part of the tariff battle well, there. And, and, and actually, it's it's a it's an interesting uh, you know reflection on humankind too because food is so much a part of our culture and food culture is going to change. Uh, you know, as as we discover things like Maine lobsters, I wonder what's happened to the crawfish population uh, down in uh, New Orleans. Uh, it's all farmed now? Well, the vast majority of what is consumed is farmed, is farmed crawfish. And I, was, I learned this uh, from uh, the host of the Catch Curve podcast, Robert Jones, that uh, the rice farmers are uh, big uh, crawfish uh, aquaculturalists as well. And they, will, they can do one in one season, and then they'll use the same right. uh, facility and raise crawfish. So the ingenuity and innovativeness of American business uh, uh, takes another uh, crack there at, at, at reacting. Yeah, they're, they're, the ra- they're raising crawfish deep in the heartland of America, uh, artificially, of course. Yeah. And, and and I would say one of, one of the interesting things, as, as kind of a closer comment for you, uh, Tyler, because yeah. at some point you're going to want to gag us, is, is, is this notion that... Uh, that there is a system uh, that that we're seeing all this happen in, and that is the tremendous flooding that you know had the agricultural, the local agricultural disastrous results in the Midwest, where there aren't as many crops uh, maturing as, as should be maturing at this time in the year. That was a local issue, and and the fact that a lot of the uh, agricultural chemicals have washed into water systems, and and have made their way down the Mississippi uh, system and uh, became a problem in, in New Orleans and now the Gulf, really is, is an illustration of middle America uh, uh, getting kind of a spanking on, on what we're, what's happening in nature all around us. And, and, uh, and it, impl- it, it involved everybody in the Midwest. It involved the people in, uh, in, in the South uh, as it came down the Mississippi Valley. And yeah. now it's uh, now it's impacting the Gulf states. So I think I think the interconnectedness of systems where some things happen one place and have implications in other places. Um, I think we're we're seeing more of that. And and I guess the question is, will people tie that all together as the same catastrophe? Is is a system catastrophe seen locally as 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 being as significant as a local catastrophe? 
And we're seeing that on the eastern seaboard too with, with, with the intensity of hurricanes, you know, where that moves inland. Uh, there are a lot of parts of the Carolinas and Virginia that were impacted a year ago that never were impacted by the kind of weather that we saw. And, and, and Peter's comment on Mexico Beach down in Florida, uh, geez, you know, that was, a, that was complete devastation. If there had been a city there of, of major significance as opposed to a wonderful small community, uh, it would have been a disaster. And we still haven't reconciled what's going what's gonna to happen with the future of Puerto Rico, which, which uh, was devastated by storms mm-hmm. and then by, by, by governmental neglect. Well, uh, thank you for your uh, final thought there, Dan. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this thing out with my final thought. I'm going to go a little bit more optimistic. I do think that uh, things, I, first of all, I think that to get what you were talking about, the system change, the systematic change that is climate change. I think we are beginning to understand that as a a people, certainly in the United States. I think that one of the big things that uh, we will soon be contending with is that um, the policies that we are seeing at the local level that are dealing with, as Peter talks about, local fishermen uh, having to adjust to uh, lobsters not being where they normally are, or Uh, local governments having to adapt to an eroding shoreline and having to raise the money. The question will be, how do we economically transition? And what, how does that happen? Does that happen from the bottom up or does that happen from the top down or some combination in between? Uh, We've covered all of these uh, different angles on the, on the podcast network from thought leadership at the federal level, the army Corps of engineers, the X prize, Uh, all the way to uh, a, a, f- a fisherman in Maine who's building a, a, a bait freezer. You want to say something? Yeah, what do you want yeah, to say? I was, I was just going to say, and, and, and to make a lateral plug uh, between ASPN and uh, Coastal News Today, that wonderful listserv that comes out every day is, is, is I, I remember having a conversation with you guys a few months ago about um, how, uh, how the bandwidth of environmental concern in California was so absorbed in all of the, uh, the horrible fire situations, including the, some time ago, the one in Ojai that you described a few minutes ago. Uh, but there was that wonderful piece that I only found out about through, um, uh, through uh, Coastal News today um, that appeared in the, um, God, what was it, in the LA Times? Yeah. Yeah, and, and that was uh, how many weeks ago? It was only about a week and a half or two weeks ago. It was, yeah. I believe it came out on last week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's worth seeing, and Peter's got his mic up now, too, so sorry, uh, Tyler, there's been a bit of an insurrection here at the No, table. it's totally yeah, fine. But, but, but that particular piece was so valuable because it pointed out that California, which, and, and the Pacific Coast of the U.S., which in a lot of ways we seem to forget about when it comes to a lot of the coastal issues, actually is, is really teed up for some serious coastal problems. And, um, and even some of the communities uh, on, the, uh, on the shore uh, near your native uh, San Francisco as well, Tyler. So, so, yep. there, so, there are, there are, so California is going to have to expand its bandwidth if it's going to listen to all of uh, the environmental issues that all have a contributing factor, that are all contributing factors with, uh, with climate change or the result or consequence of climate change, whether it's a, a surf or a turf. 100%. There's a lot, as I like to say, there's always a lot happening on the American shoreline, and there's no shortage of things to talk about. And uh, 
So it's always good to, Dan, when I, I love it when you're in town. I'm, I'm so glad we could get together and do a special Friday happy hour. Um, this is what Friday happy hours are all about, just uh, shooting the breeze on whatever's on our mind. And Dan came loaded to bear today with a, a heavy topic, but we I think we did a pretty good, a good job over coffee. It's an important topic. I'm glad we covered it. And uh, I'd like to go sit up on the... On the uh, shoreline of Lake Michigan next time uh, we have a call uh, a chance Dan and and talk about the Great Lakes I mean be happy to have you there's a lot going on up there too all right everyone we'll have a great weekend and we will catch you uh, next week with more outstanding content on the American Shoreline Podcast Network mm-hmm.